Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, I am joined by Drew Lanham, author of The Home Place, memoirs of a colored man's love affair with nature. Drew Lanham is the Poet Laureate of Edgefield County, South Carolina, and the author of Sparrow Envy, a field guide to birds and lesser beasts. Drew is also an alumni distinguished professor, provost professor, and master teacher of wildlife ecology at Clemson University. In his most recent efforts, he addresses the confluence of race, place, and nature. The Home Place was awarded the Reed Environmental Writing Award and the Southern Book Prize. Drew joins me from his home in South Carolina. Drew, welcome to Nature Revisited. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I have learned that sometimes it's the simplest questions that result in the most descriptive answers. So what inspired you to write The Home Place? Well, thank you, Stefan, for having me here today. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Inspiration for me comes primarily from, really from thinking about wildness, thinking about nature, thinking about my origins in nature and the wild place that I grew up. And so the home place is memoir that's been in the works all my life as, as memoir is. My life has been some of that inspiration, I suppose, but more so my ecology, how I fit into the nature that raised me, how that nature nurtured me. Um, is the inspiration, and ultimately it comes down to the family and friends, but also to friends with feathers in all of those wild places that that they exist. That's a bit of the inspiration for that writing and almost any other writing that I do. Because you're also a poet, correct? Yeah, I am. (laughs) You know, that's something that Everyone doesn't readily admit being a poet is, I think, maybe my first reaction to to observation and then kind of in verse, or at least in lyrical prose from there, sometimes a poem or poems. So yes, I am proudly a poet. Can you define the home place and does it have a cultural or regional connection? My home place is Edgefield, South Carolina, a small county in the Piedmont of the state, sitting on the Savannah River. A lot of people would know where it is, or at least a place close to it, as Augusta, Georgia, which is where I was actually born. It's the home of James Brown. I grew up just as the crow flies 10 miles or so from Broad Street 
The family farm that I grew up on was situated in the middle of the Sumter National Forest, the Long Cane Ranger District, as it's called. And that farm of a couple of hundred acres was my home place. Very rural, surrounded by wildness, no sidewalks, paved road, but that was a, a bit distant from the house. It was this place, this home place, that really nurtured me in in ways that are important even today. So I, I grew up between the two houses there, my grandmother's ramshackle, Mamatha's house that was built probably back in the 20s. And then my parents' house, the ranch, was was really a converted barracks that they had gotten from Fort Gordon and bricked it up and made it very modern and comfortable and a pretty nice house. But surrounding all that, again, was all this wildness, gardens and fields and pastures and forests and creeks. All of these places were my home place. And who are some of the people that we would meet there? My mother, Willa Jones Lanham, my father, James Hoover Lanham, who is now deceased and died in 1981. My brother, James Jock Lanham, my older brother, who's recently deceased. My older sister, Julia F.L., and my younger sister, Jennifer May, were all my family living in the ranch. And then my grandmother, who lived just across the holler, so to speak, which was a pasture in part, Mamatha, Ethel Bell Jennings Lanham, and I spent time between those two places. Those were the people on on the home place with a cast of characters coming and going, aunts and uncles and cousins, and occasionally a couple of hunters that would, would come and go, the main cast of characters, my family living in the ranch and my grandmother Mamatha living in the ramshackle. One of the things I really loved about your book is that nature is not something over there, but rather something right here at home, every day. The subtitle of your book is A Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. Can you describe that love affair, where it started, and how it continues? The love affair started as soon as I was able to be out and to notice the nature that surrounded us. We depended on it. We didn't buy a whole lot of food, actually, because we raised most of it. It was grown in our gardens and our own orchards. My father was a, was a cattle farmer, and he had a few hogs, so there was always beef and pork. There were creeks where we fished, and catch and release for us was always in a hot pan of grease. So sustenance itself came from that soil. Even before I knew it, I was dependent on nature in this way. We got our water from a a system of springs. So all of that made nature inescapable. It wasn't someplace over there, as, as you indicate, Stefan. It was here. It was there. It was right there. All you had to do was, was really breathe and you were a part of it. But once I grew up to, I don't know, seven, eight, ten years old and and could just roam freely, nature was, was everywhere to be found, to be touched, to be experienced. If I wanted to 
lie on the ground and roll down a hill and become a human roly-poly, then I did that. If I wanted to climb a tree, then I did that. If I wanted to skip stones, I did that. If I wanted to jump in a puddle, I, I did that. If I wanted to try to be a bird, then I did that. And so there, there really were very few restrictions on my exposure to nature. It continues um, now in that I'm, I'm still always seeking those spaces where nature prevails, as I say. I'm, I'm looking for those places where I can wander without explanation or expectation, those places where I can just to, to enter into that world and be a part of it and not apart from it. That upbringing, that nurturing, and that Eden of sorts, not a perfect place by any standards, good enough to make me wish for it in some ways again. And so it inspires me to think about conservation of spaces. It inspires me to communicate not just my experiences as a, a black man in nature, but also to to color myself, as I say, with nature, but, but also to understand the complexities of history. And so that's, that's what I'm all about. I'm, I'm about taking what raised me to be who I am to, to hopefully leverage that into some better that, I don't know, maybe helps others be better or remember or to work for closer connections to nature for everyone. Which leads right into my next question, which is, where does your black experience and nature collide? And how has the history and the culture of slavery shaped and defined your relationship with nature? Well, I, you know, it's in the soil. My family and my father and he and my grandfather and maybe my great-grandfather were, were able to own land. We had ancestors who were owned by people who owned the land. And so that collision really happens when my ancestors, who I, I don't truly know the names of, were put in bondage to, to be owned by others. And so that collision, as you call it, Stefan, is something that I think about frequently because it's it's really not all that long ago, not even 200 years since the Emancipation Proclamation. I think it's important for us to hold that knowledge, to be wise to it, to understand what it was systemically and how it impacted a nation, how it built a nation, how it has formulated how many black folks see nature and how we operate in nature and how we're involved from everything from a personal standpoint to a policy standpoint. The collisions and the convergences are historic, and so my family has always stressed education, not, not as a choice, really, but as something that's essential. So both of my parents were school teachers. My grandfather was headmaster and a school teacher, and so it's something that runs in my family that the collisions that have brought us into touch, into relationship with land, those unpleasant collisions be leveraged into more nurturing convergences 
that have us making choices. For me, how I think about my blackness, I think about it historically and the ancestors who, who paid with their lives and with their freedom, I've been able to, to leverage their sacrifice into a kind of personal success in being a writer and a poet. As my work gets out there, I hope that others see it, read it, listen to it, but also that they feel it, that it becomes something that's palpable in ways that inspires us to think beyond ourselves to bring what was bad into something that is better and hopefully leads to something that builds on that. How does race affect all of our relationships with nature? I think, Stefan, we can say race. We can use all sorts of descriptors, but I'm going to say, how does identity? And we understand that race is a societal construct. If we think of it as a prism, if we think of it as maybe the glasses that we wear or the lens through which we see the world, each of us has these individually designed prisms of identity that impact how we see the world. And as someone who is out in nature a good bit, I talked about as a kid wanting to climb trees. Now as a as an ecologist, looking at trees, identifying trees, loving trees, hugging trees, realizing that some of those those trees and the way that I see trees now, some of those same trees that we could hang a swing from could be the same tree that some black person hung from because of lynching, because of hate. That becomes this critical question of how identity, who we are, impacts what and how we see it. And so race, at least in in America, is paramount. I mean, the, the country has gone to civil war because of it. We've had a civil rights movement. Race can impact what we see, how we see. I might see a tree again as a place to climb, to put a deer stand for me to hunt from. Someone else may see that tree because of their experience or who they are as a tree to preserve, as a tree to revere, while someone else may see that tree in a much more negative light because it has a history that they know. Those are different ways that one tree might evoke different feelings, or maybe it evokes all of those feelings in one person like it does for me at times. And then sometimes ask yourself, well, how do I see the world, right? How does who I am impact how I see the world? And that's something I don't think we do enough of. And and when we do that, it can become revelatory in a way that and helps us understand the world, but then sometimes maybe helps us also understand that everybody's not going to think like we think, and we have to account for that because we're all different by some factor, whether it's how we identify by race or gender identity or whatever. How did you first start birding, and how does it connect you spiritually to nature? They were everywhere. You could always hear birds. As long as as you were awake and just slightly aware, birds were sort of the soundscape of the home place. 
hearing redbirds, cardinals, hearing rain crows, which are yellow-billed cuckoos, hearing wild turkeys gobbling, hearing mockingbirds singing songs over and over and over again, sometimes into the night, hearing blue jays call in the autumn as they were robbing my grandmother's pecan tree. I came to to know the birds in part by by sound and then by sight. At times, I would climb trees to get what I thought uh, was a bird's eye view. But then I, I also fully believed, Stefan, that I was going to be able to fly, that I was somehow going to be able to to flap my arms and run fast enough with the wind at my back and that one day I would just lift off and I would be able to fly like a bird. But no matter what I tried, cardboard wings and trash bag parachutes and umbrellas and jumping off of roofs and out of trees and off of ladders, I couldn't fly. So I came to live vicariously through birds. I came to to want to know birds intimately in the way that I knew their names, I knew their habits. So all of those sort of machinations were about understanding birds, being closer to them. Someone had given me a choice as a kid. I probably would have chosen bird over boy. That aspirational aspect of, of who birds are, what birds are, that they can do things that we can't do. I, I think I became aware of that early on, that birds were making a choice to be free, that wild birds were doing this thing that I could not do, but that I wanted to do. That inspiration that they gave me kept me sort of aspiring to soar. I I can't do what birds do, so I write about them, and I write for them as a conservationist. I even write to birds. I ask them questions. I, I want to know about their lives. I want to know what they see, what they feel. So birds are, are sort of, well, I guess you could call them an obsession <laughs> for me. Are you sure you can't see my list of questions? <laughs> I promise you, I can't. So why is story so important in expressing our relationship with nature? Well, Stefan's story is simply experience that that we take in, that we process in our heads, in our heart, and then it comes out. We tell that story, and we tell those stories because they spin around in us. They want to find their way out of us to others to, to inform them, to amuse them, to sometimes alarm them so that people understand, look, this, this happened to me. I'm going to tell you what I felt, what I saw. I'm going to tell you how I fit into the story. I'm going to tell you how I fell out of the story. In nature, there are stories at levels that, that we can't see, that we can't fathom, whether it's underwater or under some leaf or microscopically, or maybe it's up in a canopy of a tree. There are stories all around us the bits and pieces that fall to us through bird song or 
through a ripple in a pond, hearing a fox bark or hearing a bobwhite call. Those are all bits of data that come into us, weave themselves around and around and around, and the next thing you know, we have a story. We have an experience that has been built through us that then we can share with others. And nature evokes. I mean, think of the endless sort of prompts, as it were, that come from nature, the bird song, the frog calls, the, the smell of, of a ripening orchard in October. Those are stories. Those are stories that we've shared for as long as we've been gathering. Storytelling is elemental, I think, to the human experience and probably to other experiences as well. Birds tell stories. We just don't quite understand wood thrush. They're telling stories of bottom and hardwood forests. They're telling stories of traveling by stars at night. I think there are as many stories out there as there are beings. Nature is everywhere around us, and so telling stories about it is essential for, for us as human beings to to bond as a species, but also to understand how we survive in, in the nature that surrounds us. So in the book, you say that from a young age, you were considered a rare bird. Why do you think that was? And when did you first realize that that was a gift and not a hindrance? Well, I, I think early on, maybe second or third grade, uh, th there weren't very many kids watching birds. I always talk about my friend Carl Montgomery. He was an important person in my life because he was a person that didn't look like me. He was different. He was a white kid who grew up in the suburbs. I was a black kid who grew up in the country, but we both loved birds, and we both came together over that. And in that way, I came to, to maybe a different understanding that there was a way to, to get along, that, that even though we were different and we both recognized our differences and were respectful of those differences, we were able to come together over birds. And so as rare as I may have been, at least there was one other rare being that I could share my rare air with. We came to take pride in being bird nerds, and eight and ten year olds don't don't really care that much, or we didn't at that time about being different. You know, it's when you you come into adolescence that then you know peer pressure begins to speak loudly in an ear and say, "Be like these people, don't be so odd." But somehow, I I persisted through that because I've always not minded being different from others. My grandmother and my parents did enforce that on me. Be be who you are and don't bend to to peer pressure. But but ultimately I think in all of us there's also a desire to fit somewhere. You know, there there were times where I, I sort of, as my grandmother used to say, hid my talent under a bushel that I wasn't so open with my love for birds or with my love for nature. Being rare has some advantages, but it also has these these sort of built-in disadvantages. As I got older and sort of came into my own, I realized that there were people from time to time who 
didn't appreciate my difference. And maybe that difference was me being a black man in a mostly white field. And so there were people who felt maybe felt threatened by that rarity or felt like I was an outlier that didn't belong. That rarity has taken, I suppose, several forms, Stefan, that have mostly been good, have mostly been something that I've taken pride in and saying, hey, I'm different and that's okay. And those people who then accept my difference and help me celebrate it, and then I can celebrate their difference, then we can get along in wonderful ways in our differences. In the book, you say that a Sand County Almanac is sacred to you. Why? Aldo Leopold, he spoke from the land, but he spoke to the land. And it was like he sometimes was having a conversation with the land and with the wild things on the land. Those of us reading him got a chance to listen in. And it struck me early on in reading that book that I was sharing a sensibility with someone who I'd never known, who was very different from me, who lived far away from me, but who evoked in me a love and care and respect land and wild things and the and the seasons in, in ways that no one else ever had. To read that book and to be able to go back to it time and time and time again and read the passages and each time those passages ring true has been sort of a guide star. And I, I can't point to to all that many guide stars that have been reliable for me, and, and, and yes, sacred, because I can go to a Sand County Almanac and I can find comfort, I can find convergence, I can find cause, I can find those things that give me reason for being. I can find things that, in that book, that give me reasons for being better, and I can find things in that book that give me reason for telling others my story so that maybe they can be inspired and, and be better. Aldo Leopold was not a perfect person and understanding his ability to evolve. You know, there's a seminal essay called Thinking Like a Mountain where Leopold talks about on a hunting trip shooting up into a pack of wolves because he thought that killing wolves would mean more success for him as a deer hunter, and that occurred early in his career. And over the decades, he came to understand the wrong that he had done in killing predators and thinking that he was saving something for his own consumption, but also that he was doing the best thing for the mountain, for the environment. And he realized as he evolved over the years that that wasn't the right thing. And to be self-aware in that way over years and years and years to evolve to some higher level of thought and to reconcile who you were and doing a wrong thing with who you are and trying to do better, I think is, is really all we can ask of the human condition. And so a Sand County Almanac and Aldo Leopold and, and all of that it still rings true to me in that way. I swear you have a list of my questions. 
<laughs> In the chapter Jawbone, it starts with you saying, killing is a dying art. And then you go on to say, but I am a hunter. Can you talk about how important hunting is to your relationship with nature? And that in our culture of guns, hunting is often misunderstood. Yeah, I, it, hunting is very important to me because what it does is it gives me a chance to be out in nature in sort of this intentional way of becoming a part of it. I'm out there, and there's a chance that I, I might take a life. I might kill something. Before I do that, I always want to do that with as clean a conscience as I can have. That is to say that I'm not going out there to kill just to kill. If there isn't hesitation before I pull the trigger or release the bowstring, then something's wrong. Then I've become a killer more than a hunter. Hunting implies that I don't always get something that I'm seeking. Primarily, I might be seeking venison. I'm also seeking peace. I'm also seeking relationship with nature. I'm also seeking an understanding of my place in it all. And so if I am fortunate enough, if an animal with a deer presents itself in a way that I can, can take it ethically, that I can kill it ethically, that means quickly and humanely, in that moment I begin to, there's a, a transformation where that animal begins to become me because then I'm responsible for it. I'm responsible for what remains of it. I always thank it for giving itself to me, and then in consuming it, it becomes me. Its matter becomes my matter. And all the work that I do, whether it's writing or speaking or thinking, part of me has been fueled by that, that living being whose life I took. But then ultimately, I understand there's going to come a time when I get to be recycled after a, a hopefully a decently lived life and my ashes get to blow in the wind and, and become nourishment for um, the oak or the persimmon or the pawpaw that then becomes food for a deer, maybe the progeny of the, the buck that that I killed at some point in time, and then the circle is complete. It angers me that folks would want to push weapons designed for war as something needed to hunt in a culture where gun ownership has been perverted to right to violence, I think, is a purposeful misconstruction that hunters need to fight against. We really need to think about what it is that we do and the spiritual nature of it in order to save it. But it's not, you know, a TV show where someone sits for 30 minutes and whispers and suddenly the biggest deer of their life comes by and the only thing celebrated is large antlers or horns on some animal. But that ultimately it's about you have a responsibility once you take that life, whether by arrow, bolt, or bullet, you have a responsibility at that point in time to respect that life you took by consuming it. 
and by having it become you and being able to tell the stories of of that of that deer as I did in Jawbone, and I can look at that <laughs> at at that deer at its antlers, and I can tell that story. I can remember what it felt like to see that animal for the first time. I can remember every bit of that hunt. And so that animal has become enlarged in ways in that story through me. It is it is my hope, my wish, and my my written desire that my my ashes, my remains become part of the wild places where I have had the opportunity to hunt. And then the circle gets closed as I become acorn or or berry or something else that that helps some fawn become the next buck. And so I think as hunters, you know, we need to be clear about who it is that we are. That the hunters that I know are respectful in that way and that they are thinking about the lives that they take and that they are not out killing just to kill. So how important is it that we hear more voices, not just from the African-American community, but all communities, as we face an uncertain future on this planet? I think it's critical, Stefan. I mean, we're all in this together. One of my mantras is same air, same water, same soil, same earth, same fate. You can you gate yourself off in exclusivity. You can be at the headwaters and not think that you're downstream from anyone else. But ultimately, we're all in this together. We're going to come to a place where there's no gate so exclusive that we aren't all impacted by what happens to this one earth. What do you hope readers of The Home Place will take with them after reading the book? I want them to leave, hopefully, with this greater understanding of how someone different than them or maybe someone similar to them is more similar than maybe they thought or could have believed. I want it to be more than a book. I want the home place to be an idea. I want it to be an idea that, that lives in the hearts and minds of people you know, beyond me. I want it to be an inspiration I want it to be aspiration, just like the birds have been for me. And I hope that once people put it down, they feel better having read it than when they started. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Drew Lanham, and that you get a chance to read his wonderful memoir, The Home Place. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with family, friends, and colleagues. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or our website, NordenProductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Buzz and Fly by Tim Buckley. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan 
and I hope you will join me for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature.